If you got a Bible with you today, find Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It's Father's Day, so we ought to be talking about authority, right? Authorities. We all have them. We got to live with them. Some of us even submit to them. Be it a husband or a father or a mother, your boss, the government, the church, your pastor, whoever or whatever, all of us have to submit. Even those in jail have come to find out that if you push it to the limits, you'll be forced to obey some authority. You'll have to submit. Our highest authority is God. And God has given all of his authority over to Jesus. Did you know that? Just before he ascended into heaven, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to what? Been given to me, to Jesus. Jesus is the all-authoritative Son of God. And if you will recall, even in in Matthew chapter 7, after he spoke, when he finished his Sermon on the Mount, people heard him gladly because he spoke as one with exousia, authority, and not as the scribes, which is interesting because they should have had authority. But there was something about Jesus' authority that superseded everyone else's. His authority wasn't just in word, it was that. But it was in life. And so, even he himself, I mean, he demonstrated his authority over everything. He had demonstrated his authority over sin, over demons, over angels, even over the elements. Be still. Boom. Everything. Glass. Even death itself. Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down and to raise it up again. Remember that? And furthermore, all humanity, that makes everybody in this room, last I checked, will one day have to submit to Jesus, even if you don't do so now. And some of you haven't the foggiest idea what it means to submit to Jesus Christ. But you will. You'll do it now or you'll do it later. Because God himself has said that because of what Jesus has done, he has highly exalted him. He's given him a name which is above every knee, every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, say it, Lord to the glory of God the Father. I got you in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 27 for our latest cliffhanger. It's the last week, literally the last days of Jesus' earthly life. The cross is just a couple of days away. It's Wednesday in the Passion Week. Three groups of highly esteemed individuals that make up the Sanhedrin, uh, they are the experts of the law, the chief priest, and the elders, They make up this legislative Jewish body, the highest 
legislative body in the land, they've come to Jesus and they approach him in the temple precincts, in the, in the, really in the court of the Gentiles, amongst the colonnades there where he has been teaching and preaching. And they approach him on the Passion Week and they confront him on the subject of authority. And that's where we pick it up, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, now Luke adds that he was both teaching and preaching the gospel. Chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe in him? If we say from man, this is interesting. Mark's gospel doesn't even finish their thought. If we say from man, and then Mark just sort of supplies the rest of it. And he says, they're afraid of the people. By the way, Luke adds that they were afraid of being stoned to death. They held that John was really a prophet. And I would add that John has been dead now for some time. And consequently, you know, when somebody's dead, their esteem even goes through the roof. So John, is a, John was esteemed as a prophet when he was alive. He's esteemed as a huge prophet now that he's dead. And they're going, eh, we're stuck. So they answered Jesus and they gave them, I can't resist this. They gave him the Obama answer. We don't know. Sorry, I just had to say that. That's as political as I'll get the whole year, I promise. So Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. And with that, he leaves them hanging. It's Wednesday of the Passion Week. He'll be on his cross in two days. He arrived the Saturday before, hung out with Martha and her sister and brother, just down the road in Bethany. Drew a crowd because of Lazarus. You know, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody wants to see the raised dead guy. I mean, the live guy who was dead. And so, on Monday, he strides into Jerusalem on a donkey and to large masses of people and great praise. Hosanna! And, of course, the Pharisees come. Do you hear what they're saying? Yep. If it wasn't them, it'd be the rocks. Okay. He checks out the temple that night. Mark tells us earlier in this chapter, he just, he just goes in and sort of checks it out. Probably sees all the, the marketeers ready to go the next day. Then he goes back to his friend's house, spends the night, And he comes back loaded for bear the next day. On Tuesday, he comes back, he makes a bull whip, and he becomes furious in the temple. The most incredible display of righteous indignation ever found by Jesus. Perhaps comparable to the times he lays into the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. But it's within this holy fury of Jesus toward the religious leaders and, you know, when he drives out the money changers in the temple, that these religious leaders 
question about authority is actually answered. They just weren't listening. And we'll get to it. It's Wednesday. He has returned to the temple. Now that he has cleansed the place, he can teach the place. Which is a very interesting thought, isn't it? He didn't teach and preach the gospel until he cleansed the place the day before. I was reminded of Josiah and Hezekiah. Hezekiah goes there, remember he goes back into the temple and he just cleans the place out before the worship can resume. And this is, has so much application in your life. Dads, as, you, as dads, you're not going to be able to resume the worship in your life until you clean out the crud. Clean out the place and it'll be ready for the gospel. It'll be ready for teaching. Actually, the gospel cleans the place out, doesn't it? And there is a sense of which you, you don't come to God, you know, you don't clean up your life in order to come to God. You come to God so you can clean up your life. But if you're a follower of Christ, you need to clean out the crud. And then you're ready for worship. And that's what he's doing here. When the Sanhedrin approach him, he's teaching and preaching the gospel. And these guys are hating and they are plotting the whole way for his demise. They're just looking for the right moment to seize him. And so, in verse 28, they come to him. Well, so what, what's up here? Look at verse 28 where, he say, where they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? This is, one writer said... If, if you were to put this into the modern vernacular, it would be, who the H-E double toothpicks do you think you are? That's what's going on here. Who gave you the right to do what you're doing? I, I couldn't help but think of this as I was trying to insert myself into this scene. These leaders are furious, and Jesus gives it right back to them. Last year, one of our sons, I won't identify who, um, <laughs> he, uh, he went to a week-long Christian concert up in Minnesota. Some of you are familiar with this one. It's like a Christian version of Woodstock, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, they're going to all these stages and listening to these people sing. And So my son and his friends, they go to the Switchfoot stage. And they walk up, and this little, this, this, apparently this little kid guardian has been put in front of the stage. He doesn't even hardly know Switchfoot. And my son and his friends are starting to walk up onto the platform. And the kid guardian says, well, hey, what are you doing? Only Switchfoot can be here. My son says, we're Switchfoot. The kid lets him onto the platform. They sit down at the, at the table where they sign autographs. I kid you not. I never told him to do anything like this. Unbelievable. It wasn't very long that somebody comes up on the platform who actually has authority, knows Switchfoot, and kindly kicks them off the platform. They had no right, and they had no authority to be there. And yes, I chastised him for that little shenanigan. Well, Jesus walks into the temple, and he goes about his business with great authority. He teaches the people that are there. He confronts the money changer, kicks them out. He shows his great 
righteous indignation we just referred to. And the, and the next day, the, the, the actual authorities, the recognized authorities, come to Jesus, and they're acting like the kid that guarded the stage where my, my son and his friends are. I mean, they're, they're acting like they have no idea who they're talking to. And in reality, Jesus does have authority. He does have the right to be there. The question that they're asking, however, is legitimate. It's actually quite reasonable. What gave you authority? Who gave you authority? That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? These guys are asking these things because Jesus has confounded the paradigm that they had come from. See, these guys are all... You don't just just put an application in to become a, a religious elitist in Bible times. The rabbis came up through the system. They picked out certain guys. They asked them to follow them. We've talked about this before. If you were a priest, you had to fight. You had to fall into the lineage. And Jesus just doesn't fit anything, even though he certainly fell into the lineage. He, he never followed a rabbi. And yet he is a rabbi. He was even called a rabbi by rabbis. His ragtag group that followed him, and they were hardly the cream of the crop. And so none of this makes sense to them. And I was just thinking about this, this whole business of authority. You know, now I'm in my 50s, and it seems more acceptable for me now, you know, that I'm a little more seasoned. I can call people out in their sin. I can confront them. But I've been confronting people for years. And, you know, although I can't claim 1 Timothy 4.12 anymore, let no man despise your youth. (laughs) I used to claim that a lot years ago. Now that I've been at Sailorville for 15 years, and thank you very much for that nice thing you did here a few weeks ago, but it is really high time that I confessed something to you I've never told you publicly. I have never been ordained. Go ahead. (gasps) Therefore, every marriage that I've ever done the last 15 years is null and void. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That'd be a lot of you. But how this came about is kind of interesting, actually. Uh, The church where I first pastored never required me to be ordained. And the reason is because I'd spent a couple of months with them one summer preaching and teaching and evangelizing and discipling. And so when it came to the time they asked me to be their pastor, I said, well, you know, I've never been ordained. They said, you don't need to be ordained. We've already seen you. you. We've got the proof of the pudding right here. Well, it was very flattering. It was very honoring. It was very encouraging. I'm not sure it was really wise on their part. But they saw in me the authority of the word and the practice of it. Now, I want you to listen carefully because some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a boastful comment. It's not intended to be. I want you to think clearly with me here. There is danger in being a seasoned pastor that one could be tempted to rely on his, uh, the authority of his position, the authority of his experience, the authority of his years of practice. 
But listen carefully. The authority I possess today is no different than the authority I possessed 25 years ago. It is the authority of the Word of God and a life that backs it up. That's the reason why young pastors can be and ought to be highly esteemed. If they know the word and they have a life to back it up, then esteem them very highly for their work's sake, as the scripture says. So, my whole premise is that Jesus came at these individuals with the authority of his word and his life. And it should never be any different for you and me. So they come to him and they say, what, why are, you know, where did you get this authority? To, to, and they're, they're clearly referring to what he had done radically the day before, flipping over tables, driving out people with a bullwhip. And so they're, they're, they're questioning him and his authority. It's interesting to me that even the temple, I got to let this get through here before I go any further. There we go. What's interesting to me is while they're calling Jesus out for what he did, there were temple guards. Remember the ones who arrested him a few days later? There were temple guards all over that place. They didn't seem to have any problem with what he was doing. And so Jesus, in response to their question, puts them on what is often called the horns of a dilemma. He puts these scholars on the horns of a dilemma. The horns of a dilemma, that's when you present two alternatives. It doesn't matter which one you choose, you're going to get stuck, right? You're like, like, a, like two points of a bull. Choose this one, I'm stuck. Choose this one, I'm stuck. Either way, you lose. So he says, John's baptism, is it, did it come from heaven or did it come from man? There's people all around. He's just shish-kebobbed them. And what he, what he has done is classic rabbinical stuff where uh, a rabbi would, with a question that was put to him, he would put a question back on the student in order to take him deeper into the subject, deeper into the dilemma, and that's what Jesus has done. And as MacArthur points out, Jesus is not evading the answer. He's unmasking the hypocrisy, unquote. They had no intention of acknowledging, not publicly anyway, that John's ministry was from God. And they were too chicken to admit their, un- their unbelief. That's why they say, you know, I, I don't know. So Jesus says, okay, you don't want to answer me? I don't want to answer you. We're done. And he leaves them hanging. Actually, as I said earlier, Jesus had already answered their question if they had been listening. When he rebuked them in the temple, and many of you remember the scene, it's just earlier in this chapter. He's driving them out. He said, my house shall be called a what? House of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. Every scholar in Israel would have known that verse. And then he he quotes Jeremiah 11, verse 7. He says, you've turned it into a what? Den of thieves. So the authority 
that Jesus possessed that they're asking for was the authority he has always relied on, the very words of God. But it wasn't just that. If you read the last verse in Zechariah, it says that the temple, it says, no traitor will be found in the house of the Lord of hosts. A traitor, a merchandiser. So in essence, Jesus was not just being supported. His authority wasn't just his words, but his actions in driving them out. But they were too blind to see this. There were two things that Jesus always confounded his enemies with. Two things, his words and his works. Wisdom is found in her works. Ever read that? Jesus said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Again, we referred to this last week in John 7 when the temple guard was sent out to get Jesus. They came back empty-handed. When they were confronted by the leadership, they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Not with the authority he has. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. And even in John chapter 10, when he's debating with his enemies, he, he, he finally acquiesced, Jesus acquiesced. He said, you don't want to believe my words? If you don't believe my words, at least John 10, 38, believe the works that I do. They're backing up my words. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. The sun sets us free. The word sets us apart. And our obedience to God's word sets us up to be most useful for God in changing this world. Some of you are still living in the world of the Sanhedrin. You have knowledge, but you're lost. Some of you are stuck and have been stuck For a long period of time because of your unwillingness to obey the words of God. If if we're going to make an impact in this world, we have to have the authority of truth in us. And we have to have the authority of truth coming out of us with our lives. It's just that simple. And some of you have all this knowledge, but there's some point in your life you've not been willing to obey, you've not been willing to be humble, you've not been willing to confess, you've not been willing to do, because for him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. And it's at that very point that you're stuck. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers, some of the most incisive that he's ever written. He wrote, The golden rule for understanding spiritually is not intellect, but obedience. If things are dark to me, then I may be sure there is something I will not do. Intellectual darkness comes through ignorance. Spiritual darkness comes because of something I do not intend to obey. And then he writes these words in conclusion. Watch The things you shrug your shoulders over. And you will know why you do not go on spiritually. Unquote. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, 
right up to the moment that he died. And these would be the ones wagging their hands in his face while he hung on the cross. We're in the dark. Not because they were unintelligent, but because they refused to obey the known word of God. Just that simple. And uphold it. Listen carefully. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, get this. There is nothing so powerful, so useful to God, than the authority of his word and the life to back it up. Nothing. And so I'll just, a couple of thoughts just in conclusion here for all of us. Discipline will lead to delight. I am talking to all of you, but every dad on high alert here. Discipline yourself unto godliness, the Bible says. Discipline yourself to be in God's word daily. Discipline will lead to delight. I know nothing you start at the beginning is, is something you enjoy. I mean, I, you know, half of you are doing some new exercise program. I started a new exercise program the other day. My shoulders are killing me. I hate it. But I know that if I can't stay at it, I'll delight in it. Discipline leads to delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Discipline leads to delight. And Discipline yourself unto godliness, as Paul said to Timothy. Secondly, study leads to sanctification. Now remember, in Jesus' mind, in God's mind, study, when he says study to show yourself approved and all that, study was never intended to be a merely intellectual thing. The Jews had a saying, I know, therefore I do. So all study has this idea of the word and the application of the word intrinsic within it. Study will lead to sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is what? It's truth. Jesus would say in the very next chapter to these very same people, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. This is amazing. This would be like telling a pastor you don't know your Bible. It, worse. Worse than that. But they were not disciplined in their application and their study. So discipline leads to delight. Study will lead to sanctification. Obedience will lead to openings. Joshua 1.8. Some of you have memorized it. This book of the law will not depart out of your mouth, but you will meditate in it day and night that you may observe, there's the obedience, to do according to all that is written there, and then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. And Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them and obeys them, he it is who loves me. He who who loves me will be loved by my Father. I'll love him too. And I will manifest myself. Thaneras, I'll disclose, I'll open up, I'll reveal, I'll show. That's all that is intrinsic within that word. I'll show myself. I'll open myself up to you. Obedience leads 
to openings. Obedience will demand doing the hard, sacrificial, even seemingly impossible things that you're struggling with right now. But when you do, it will open up exhilarating experiences. And I absolutely mean that. Exhilarating experiences where God comes through, answers your prayers, opens doors, and affirms his truth to you and me. And finally, combination will lead to confirmation. When you combine the word of God and a life that backs it up, your esteem will grow, your influence will spread, and your praise to God will be very obvious. There is nothing so powerful, so useful to God than the authority of his word and a life that backs it up.